How's the form? Are you well? Because you're looking well. Welcome to episode 16 of the Kevin Doherty podcast. My guest today is Patrick Noonan. Pa has been a guest on the podcast before, and today we chatted about some random topics, including Patrice O'Neill, Carl Pilkington, our time in Japan, through hiking, floating, and digital nomadism. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you helped spread the word by recommending it to a friend or sharing it on your Instagram stories and tagging me at the Kevin Doherty podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Keep this in. <laughs> Panunin, fantastic to see you again. The man who, when I was homeless in Dublin, gave me a bed for two weeks and introduced me to the genius that is Patrice O'Neill. Thank you for being on the podcast again. My pleasure. How's the farm, lad? Yeah, all good. Just because I brought up Patrice initially, let's let's just fucking deep dive into probably our favourite comedic mind of of our generation, or at least whatever I've witnessed on YouTube or at social media. It's just he's he's a tremendous guy. Like, why were you initially drawn to Patrice? Yeah, I can't remember exactly like the first time I heard Patrice and you. Actually, I think I remember actually. Someone I went to school with posted about Patrice on their Facebook uh, the day he died. And they said, RIP Patrice, something like that. And I think that was the first time I actually, like, properly, like, I saw a clip of Patrice. No way, that's yeah. like 2011, 2012? Yeah, something like that. I can't remember exactly. But yeah, in, in that round, in that range. Uh, so, like, I never was never a fan of Patrice when he was alive, which to this day, just like, because I'm such a Patrice fan now. Yeah. Uh, just yanks in my heart but again I'm a fan now and I can be happy with that uh, so yeah this guy I mean I haven't talked to this guy with school a few years ago I don't know him that well like but he just shared a clip on Facebook and I saw that and I was like that, that's pretty funny whatever and again I guess that probably planted a seed of Patrice in my mind at some point and I from there I mean it could have been I can't remember exactly now when I properly got listened to Patrice but it could have been could have been two years later before I was like listened to his full-on stand-up or his radio appearances that kind of stuff but the like the time when i was listening to him i can recall uh, like full-on listening to him was when i was hiking in mongolia uh i was doing so i went to ulaanbaatar for a month and with two weeks of that month i was kind of uh there was a national park like uh i don't know like you know, a couple of hours away from the ulaanbaatar the capital of mongolia and i was out there hiking by myself and i had like I had, for whatever reason, I knew I knew, okay, I'm out there by myself. I need some something to consume. I need media to consume. Like I need stuff to listen to. 
and I've probably listened to bits of Patrice, bits and pieces of Patrice here and there before that, and I downloaded like the entire back catalogue. So he was on a radio show called O and A, Opie and Anthony, and like he would be on that for like three hours at a time, and he did like 150 or so, maybe less, I don't know, but like, over 100 appearances on that show, and so there was literally hundreds and hours of him on radio just talking, shitting, and just going through, going through his philosophy or whatever, whatever you call it. And so I downloaded that, uh, put on an SD card, had that in my phone, and I was out there hiking and camping, and you have a lot of downtime when you're out there by yourself, like uh, either hiking during the day or just at camp at night, just cooking dinner, you have earphones in, just listen to stuff. And I just had literally for like a week, just Patrice just talking shit in my ear. And it was the funniest shit I've ever heard. And it was, I just like, that was like, a, I'd say like the, the turning point where like Patrice became like one of my, one of my favorite comedians. I've always been a comedy fan, but he would say in that, mo- in that week became like the, like the goat to me, you know? Like Patrice for me, once I heard him and once I kind of started to understand what he was about and how he viewed the world, that like Elephant in the Room is one of my favorite specials in terms of like an hour comedy special. But Patrice's view on the world when you when you got an insight into how he thought on the ONA show, it nearly raised the standard of funny for me. Yeah. in a way that I never thought was possible from one person. And like the way he would view different subjects just blew my mind in terms of there's a standard nav- narrative for anything that we look at, but Patrice just had such a unique take on nearly any sort of topic that it made you rethink the world and at least see it from his perspective in a way that was, as he would say, righteous. Yeah. In terms of when he goes to bed, he knows he was honest with himself. He's not bullshitting himself to, to fit into modern society. He was able to look at modern society and give this incredibly unique take on a myriad of subjects. And it just kills me because this is the time more than any other time when if you know Patrice and if you know what he was about, I would love to see his take on 2020 for sure and i think we should give some context on actually who patrice was for those who don't know him he was a big giant fat black guy from boston by all definitions a sex pest uh but he was just hilarious and profound and and supporter of free speech he like he had a truth to him that he would just doesn't matter you can disagree with him i disagree with him on many things but he is so funny and so true to himself that you can not ignore him. And I think that's what that's what stands out to, uh, stands out about Patrice. And like uh, to me, like his stand up to me is amazing. His stand up, his last stand up was uh, Elephant in the Room, one of the best. Uh, but in my mind, he's not the best stand up com- comic. In but terms my, of performance. Yeah, in terms of the show, like the the one hour special. There's probably like Louis C.K. or someone could be better. You could say is better, but in terms of being a comic, to me he's the best and will always be the best. Because, being funny. Yeah, and he was what you're saying is like. I'm not gonna say anyone could hone an hour comedy show, but to be funny in a moment, off the cuff, on any topic like the the range of topics he talked about in the O and A show was 
amazing, like just ridiculous. And he, he could just like open your auntie would just ask him a question, and he would answer it with like this four, 40 hour, yeah. four, 40 minute deep, philosophically robust, every angle cover it. Answer. Like you could throw a line at Patrice and he would come back with the most succinct 20, 20 word sentence yeah. and it would just sum everything up and then he could break into a narrative. Yeah. It was just like... Your show is working, so that's the thing. He, he, he give yes. you the headline and say, this is what it is. And you go, fuck, that is what it is. Yeah. And then he'll go, and here is why and what it is. And he'll break it down from 50 different ways and go, fuck, Patrice. And it's nearly like what I loved about Patrice and what I... What I love about great comics is if you look at a, like a standard comedian, they kind of present the world as you'd like it to be. What Patrice was able to intrinsically do was say something and at a reptilian level, at a gut level, you felt this is probably what it is, especially according to him. Mm. It was just, it was such a special way. And even like the word that you use to describe it in terms of funny, funny is not a powerful enough word to describe how hilarious he was in hundreds of hours on yeah. that radio show. Like truly a special person. Oh, amazing. And and just like same with musicians and uh, all those people in the creative arts. Like when if you look at what other comedians say about Patrice, they knew this guy is the guy. Like they would hang out in the comedy cellar and they would go there and I was like, oh shit, Patrice is here. They, 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 yeah, the whole court. That's what they always said. They're like, And I, shit, Patrice is here. I have to up my game. I have to be better because I know Patrice is going to shit on me and t- tear me apart. So I had to make sure my game is on point. My set is on point. And there is definitely, there are these people in history, I think, that raise the game with people around them and they don't get the... Uh, require credit for what they did so like uh, all the, the comedians around him were better for being around patrice but patrice was such a ball breaker and uh burn uh, bridge burner that most people listening just probably haven't even heard of him i don't know maybe maybe i'm wrong but like the you most people don't know patrice o'neill who even if they're fans of comedy it's like it's he's he's, he's, a, bit, so true. he's a bit more niche but if you are a true fan of comedy and you hear him you're like this is the real stuff are there any bits that kind of stand out to you as like historic bits when you look at the whole ONA thing? Like yeah. if you if you think of ONA, Opie and Anthony yeah. and Patrice, is there any bit that straight away comes to mind where you're like, I love, like it's just one of those classic, classic bits. There's a, quite a few to be honest, but uh, I don't know where to start. Uh, his take on Asians was 100% racist, but the funniest yeah. <laughs> in the world. Uh, his he he used to talk race with uh, Anthony, who is, for all intents and purposes, like a white right winger. You would say like Fox News incarnate almost, you know. Yes. And and he would have deep conversations about race with Patrice, and those things were very illuminating in many ways because it's it's so rare you hear people just sitting down talking about such a sensitive to- topic. Uh, and while being recorded. That yeah, was, while being that recorded. Was a huge thing, like. Whenever, whenever you heard Patrice talk, you knew it was his genuine take on something. And even if it was a mild take or yeah. if it was the most extreme take, whether it be misogynistic, whether it be racist, it was his way of viewing the world. And that was so yeah. refreshing to me. Yeah. And I think one of the funniest examples like they, they did to illustrate this was 
they went down to New York sidewalk and Anthony wore a Nazi helmet that one of the fans gave them and they, and then they were hail a, a cab because this whole thing in America in America no, no not like see hail a cab but uh, they would hail a cab and it's like there's a thing in like New York in Manhattan if a black person hails a cab they'll just be ignored right and like the and so they were they were testing okay will a cab driver stop for a black person or a Nazi oh my god and like yeah, and they did they did like this ridiculous segment and it was and Patrice you were just going off the rail when uh, when uh, so they'd they'd raised their hand and uh, like the first time I can't remember exactly now but it was like the first time they went to Patrice like, oh, okay it's fine we thought okay they're not that racist and then they did I think the best out of seven and like <laughs> for the rest of it he just lost entirely there was like somewhere they parked halfway between and they're like what are you doing are you a racist already why are you picking up a Nazi and it was just like a, a ridiculous illustration of a kind of profound those point it's like there's there's if you're a black person in Manhattan, they're not going to pick you up. And again, it's like just they're dealing with uh, broad philosophical ideas in some ways, but just bring it down to that hilarious, silly, mundane stuff. And you just laugh at it. And in some ways, it just it just makes it hilarious. And you kind of, I don't know, in some ways you learn through that. And then there's uh, other ways, other bits of Patrice. Like he was, he was a massive... Uh, pop culture kind of a guy so you talk about films a lot she's reading really that there's like a super cut on youtube of like 13 hours of patrice talking about films and i'm a massive film buff myself and yes such a great perspective oh amazing and yeah but uh like again there's so much it's like and there's him talking about his time growing up in the hood the times his perspective on women and uh, his relation to the white world yeah exactly uh like anthony said that patrice has like a phd in white people yes. <laughs> do you ever see where he was talking about uh the song creep i love it Amazing. and he so <laughs> yeah so so he's so he's actually not on ona at this stage i think and um, he's talked about it on ona but I know, I know the clip you're talking about there's another radio station yeah, yeah and so he's like, pr- patrice is talking about uh the song creep and why it's so important to white people and like how it, it taps into our low self-worth at the end of it. But he mentions one piece of music in Creep that if you listen to it, it's the... <clears throat> and that's the most important yeah. bit of the song to yeah. white and people. And I watched that and I was like, what the and he fuck? Goes, that touches white people's souls. Yeah, something, <laughs> there's something about those two yeah, yeah, notes yeah. that just blows white people apart. And it's like, I am a creep, I am a loser. Yeah. Have you ever heard him talk about Fight Club? A little bit, a little uh, bit. Again, he's like, the first time I watched Fight Club, I was like, I saw something I wasn't supposed to see. <laughs> like this is this is quintessential white man. <laughs> it's like why the white man hates himself. Just just this guy surrounded by like uh, things as opposed to what he needs in life. <laughs> and, the way he says it as well. I mean, like, I'm doing no justice. Yeah, like go listen to yourself. The, the way he says it is so incredible. It's like I watched the film. And I lean back yeah. and I say, I saw something that I wasn't supposed, supposed to see. see. I think I've seen something that's quintessentially whiteness. Yeah. And he just starts pondering it. Like. Yeah. And yeah, he had a unique perspective on so many things. And when, when, you're, just listen, when you're just listening to someone talk truthfully and honestly, and what, what Patrice would kind of dub as, with kind of righteous mm. authenticity, 
Uh, it's so refreshing, especially in this day and age, yeah. uh, where you can people people. I know we're all guilty of it. We just kind of we hedge our bets, we hold back a bit. Patrice singularly did not give a fuck, and it's so refreshing. Yeah, and it's it's kind of like um, everybody operates in a system where you might think something, but you're never going to say the way you you experience that thought. There's some sort of a, a filtration system before you actually put it out into the world. And Patrice was so brilliant at taking in information, assessing what the issue was, and then just from his perspective, it might have been right or it might have been wrong, but from his perspective, he was able to go, in the moment, this is what I feel. This hmm. is what I feel in my gut. And he was just able to expand on ideas that are, especially in this day and age, so uncomfortable for mm. people to talk about for openly. Sure. It was, it was beautiful to watch. And like anybody who's a comedy fan, who is unfamiliar with the work of Patrice O'Neill, obviously, his special elephant in the room is fantastic. But to get a real deep insight into why Patrice meant so much to the wider comedy community. His, his hang. That's what it was. It was hanging with Patrice. Yeah. And that's the thing. Uh, like his stand up is a great, uh, like, uh, gateway into Patrice, and only gives you a flavor of what it would like to hang out with Patrice. But what the comics love was they said when you're with him in person, he was the funniest person ever yeah. to just hang around with, and he would just on a whim he could create a bit where any other competent comedian would have to spend six months or a year on honing that bit he would just come out with it off the cuff and it would be nothing to him and that's the weird thing like when you when you watch some of his raw sets on stage you're like with most comedians their premises are so tightly honed before they start that it's it's really really hard to essentially know if they're thinking in the moment or if they've actually essentially researched a bit and investigated mm. it and honed it to a point where it sounds natural. Whereas with Patrice, he would come out with some stuff on stage that you once you knew the guy, you essentially knew that he was coming up with something mm. in the moment. And that's, like, as a performer, that is so admirable and that is so brave and that is so above what most people would do in a very challenging um, profession. Oh, for sure. It's like any walk of life, just to go up there when, like, nothing... Every, every, everyone wants to, like, there's their speech read out in full or whatever else, just, but it, just to go up there with just maybe just a key word in your head or something, I'll talk about this. And and to have the confidence in yourself to just ha to, to know that your perspective is as valid that you can just uh, talk about it and know that it doesn't matter what your take is, blah, 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 you can just uh, get there and it'll be funny. Like, I remember, Patrice, I can't remember what it was. There was some, like, school shooting or some horrific event in America. And he was saying, like, all the other comics uh, were, were waiting for Patrice to go up there and, like, take the bullet, essentially, for, like, for, for, for the crowd. He's like, okay, I'll go up and talk about this fucking shit. And then he went up there and just talked about it. And like, quick, okay, now the dam is broken. Now we can all talk about it. And I just kind of think, if you were living it, if you were in that, like, New York scene or whatever, and 
there wasn't that Patrice figure who wasn't willing to go break the dam, then it will take longer to get to, for everyone else to kind of jump in, do you know what I mean? And for comedy, I think it's the first person through the door is always the bloodiest. Uh, and Patrice was like, yeah, I have no problem doing that. It's fine. And everyone else can flood in after him and they can do their jokes as well. It's like the two words that come to mind for me when I, when I think of Patrice. Authenticity. And authenticity to such a level that it's undeniable. Just, just so purely himself. And then as he described himself, righteous. Mm. So like morally right. Am I, am I doing what fits in with my intrinsic value system? Yeah. And so much of what he did was just speak his truth. Yeah. And again... You don't have to agree with everything he says, but it's an, it's an incredible benefit even to listen to somebody who maybe you completely disagree with his perspective on things, but just to see his take on it and the way he could articulate something in the moment was so, so powerful. And as I said, for me, it just raised what I thought funny could be in the moment. Yeah. Uh, Ruske is like, um, you said morally right. Like, if you listen to Patrice, like, he's not morally right. Like, he's talking about pissing on his girlfriend and just going to Brazil, going to brothels and just fucking everything, going to with Jim Norton, taking Viagra, laughing at his erection. Like, he... <laughs> <laughs> like, there's some ridiculous things. And for me, he was kind of free in many respects because, uh, I don't know, in some respects, I was like, so, in university, I studied arts and it's kind of... Uh, you kind of you're, you gauge with that kind of kind of uh, uh, that uh, kind of pristine, uh, progressive kind of ideology, and I totally agree in many respects of it. But sometimes this is a man for a cotton balls. Sometimes it's funny to just hear some fucking dirty shit yeah. come down, and he just that's like he's like, uh, if I, if this is what makes me happy, this is what makes me happy. It doesn't mean I need to change it. As long as I'm not hurting anyone else, it's all consensual play. Whatever you want to say. Uh, that, and that's that to me that's a kind of freeing just to hear someone so openly talk about that and like Patrice would openly admit that he was a horrendous misogynist like yes. I, I wouldn't agree that with that but it's uh, in terms of uh, sexual play I kind of I lean more towards his side than anything else but I mean there doesn't need to be misogynistic in it but the point is you don't need to be you don't need to agree with anyone 100% to just appreciate what they're doing yeah and and I agree with a whole bunch of Patrice's stuff and but if I just go as far as he would in some regards <laughs> but uh, it's so funny to listen to and it's so refreshing and just when you hear it yeah when I was like when I was back in Mongolia it was just so refreshing to hear something so new because I've, I've been a comedy fan for so long and you kind of I know even like someone like Louis C.K. or something like that uh, obviously he's disowned now but uh Back in the day, we'll say, like, you know, he was... Did you he, see his last special? The one he released on his website? I haven't seen it. I wouldn't see it, but I haven't seen it. Really good. Yeah, I'll really come check good. it out at some point. I'm just too lazy. But uh, I need to go onto his website and buy it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I really want to see it. And I, yeah, I think... Like, talk about Louis C.K., like, he, he did some weird stuff, but I mean, it wasn't as... it's Like, people say, it's always like Bill Cosby. Definitely not. Like, he just... He did some weird shit. Fair enough. You didn't leave him off. There's a spectrum with exactly. these sort of yeah. things. And I think people kind of, especially if you're caught in the wave of the Me Too movement. Yeah, he was definitely a victim of the time that he 
status confession. Like if you yes. did it now, would you be people go, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. Yes. Uh, like I mean, not to get political, but Joe Biden was just just accused accused of rape very credibly, and everyone's like, oh, well, he's going to be president, so we just leave him off. Like, well, Trump or the guy for running for Supreme Court a few, last year, the same shit. Like he was like, no, yeah, whatever. We won't go there, Kev. Well, we will. We'll take a book from uh, Patrice's book. Take Patrice's book. Go deep into it. No, we won't. So, like, Patrice was probably the second person that I delved into in that way where I was just listening to hours mm. of him talk about different topics. The first, the first thing that I ever did was delve into the mind of Carl Pilkington. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the most mind-blowing things for me because Carl Pilkington never did stand up, just this unique Mancunian who ended up editing Ricky Gervais's and Steve Merchant's radio show. But his perspective on life and the way he would view unique things, it blew my mind to an extent yeah. where... For years, I couldn't fall asleep without the voice of Carl Pilkington in my ear. The same, yeah, the XFM shows, amazing. Yes. And that's, like, I don't listen to radio in the sense I don't turn on the radio, like, oh, who am I listening to today? It's like, but radio is a very unique medium in that there's no preciousness with it. We can just sit down, it's kind of like podcasts are kind of the extension of it now, I would say, but radio is the uh, kind of just unique medium where turn on the background it doesn't matter if you listen to it every minute and no one's expecting a laugh every 30 seconds you can go deep or you can you can you can do it over a few, few hours whatever and it's kind of and also it's only the medium where you can hear one person one a few people talking at length for hours over the period of years do you know what i mean and and as like, well, what's so unique about radio, like what's so unique about what ONA did, what's so mm. unique about the Ricky Gervais show when it was on XFM, is that it was live. Yeah. It's such a different thing when, like if you fuck up on a podcast and... Yeah, I'm sure you never asked that Biden bit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but like if you fuck up on a podcast, it, as long as you're not doing it live, you have time to go, hmm, is that a sensible thing to release? Maybe I'll edit that a little bit. But with live radio, with free-form conversation, it's one of the most liberating things to listen to because it's, I think it's such an underappreciated skill or art or craft or whatever mm. you want to look at it where somebody is in the moment expanding on thoughts and literally jogging after their mind and trying to keep up with it. Yeah, It's so rare, whereas if you're writing a book, you can plan out what you're going to say if something doesn't make sense you can course correct but free form in the moment speech it's a beautiful thing to witness when the people that are doing it are skilled at their for trade. sure yeah like i'm uh probably just gonna be going this stuttering cunt like do you know what I mean but <laughs> <laughs> but when i'm i can write when i take the time i can write i would say semi-eloquently i can uh frame my thoughts in a cohesive manner but to, yeah, to sit down and outline in a concise and uh, beautiful and verbose way, it is a very unique skill. And when, you, when it's done right, and it's done with a, a mix of pure authenticity, humor, 
uh, not even intelligence, like you don't want to say characteristics intelligence, but just say something unique, something different, something you haven't heard before. It's so refreshing. And and like I've done it's the same as you, it's like I go to listen to Carpilkington uh, going to bed or Patrice going to bed or when I'm out hiking. And it's just like, it's like, especially like when I, I did, I've done a lot of like long distance hiking where I'm just kind of out there by myself and you don't see people, like you don't talk to anyone you know for weeks at a time. But listening to these podcasts or these radio shows, it's kind of like, oh, I'm checking with the guys. Like, it's a, there's yeah. a sense of familiarity there in some ways. It's nearly can... more than the fly on the wall experience mm. if you're just sitting down and listening to it. Like, for the, for the things that you're doing where you've decided to do, like, this individualistic pursuit, it's incredibly valuable to have at least a voice that you know and trust and love in your ear when yeah. you're doing something difficult by yourself. Yeah, and it's, like... It would suck if it was my family going, Patrick, you can do it. I believe in you. I was like, shut the fuck up. I don't give a fuck. Give me Patrice O'Neill. Like, give me something with some substance here. Like, and I don't need that. It's like, I don't need to be just constant affirmation stuff. But it's just, you want something interesting and, uh, I don't know, something familiar in some ways, what you've listened to a few times never uh, to kind of just listen back to. And because there's so much of it, like Patrice must have had, I don't know, like 300 hours Cat Pitchin, I don't know, 100 hours, let's say. Bones of it. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, that's a lot <laughs> to listen to. And you can listen to that on repeat, and it still seems fresh in many regards, but still there's an element of familiarity as well that means you want to, keeps you listening in some ways. Yeah. It's, it's really weird as well, because, like, I would have listened that to, especially Carl was the first thing I listened to for, like, a period mm. of three or four years. And actually, when I used to coach in the States, that was one of my kind of mainstays where I was going to bed I just needed the wifi code and I needed to throw on a bit of car if I had the room to myself because it's so comforting to hear a familiar voice that's making you not laugh out loud when you're in bed but smile at his ideas and like you nearly get nostalgic because you'll listen to an episode five times over the period of three years and it's just it's so rewarding to hear the way he comes to his own conclusions it's just especially with some somebody like carl where carl's such a unique being because like as i said he he's never tried stand-up and even now he's he's still kind of shying away from the limelight but in terms of a unique perspective like patrice is undeniable whereas Carl Pilkington is nearly unassumingly brilliant in his unique view on the world yeah. and how he sees all sorts of things. He Again, he's one of those people where you can throw an idea at him and he will come back with the most unique take on something and it will just make you see things from a different lens, which, which I think is so important in, in this day and age, especially because like if you're on social media and you only follow a certain amount of people or a certain type of people whether you know it or not you're in this echo chamber and ideas that you believe are just being reinforced and reinforced but if you go outside of your comfort zone in terms of who you're willing to listen to or who you're willing to give your time to to actually explore their ideas it's so rewarding to see or hear a new take a new perspective on things and it does help broaden how you see the world. For sure, yeah. Uh, they're, they're called like filter bubbles. It's because like Google, uh, like 
Google, YouTube, all these people, like they'll they'll track what you listen to, how long you listen to it, and then all your recommendations will be based upon that. And so very easy to like look at YouTube recommendations. It's like you'll see what you want to see in many respects. And there's some good elements to that, but also means you're going to be trapped in that in that uh, in that filter bubble. And like and then that becomes your world. You can't you'll never see anything beyond that because that's what you're. Uh, trapped into and it's confirming everything that you've already heard so it just makes your belief in your perspective so much stronger yeah. every time it's reinforced by something you go deep down in the bubble then the bubble becomes tighter and then tighter and tighter and because that's what google's giving you what you want you because it's confirming your own opinion your, your own perspective so i like to i have multiple accounts uh, so google thinks i'm 20 different people or really? i go going yeah yeah for sure oh it's the only way to, in my opinion, to uh, to engage with media out there, I would go into incognito, whatever you want, different either emails or just different, yeah, just, just different, just confuse Google or clear your cookies entirely, that kind of stuff, um, and then Google just don't know anything, doesn't know anything about you. Uh, I've always yeah, thought there should be some way of saying, Google increase my. Uh, serendipity of new media I could engage with or some, something like that some feature like that but they obviously want you to click more to watch more so it's like we're going to show you exactly what you want yeah. based on our giant AI algorithm mm. uh, oh. and so it's kind of you have to this day and age you have to kind of outthink the AI the artificial algorithm uh, to kind of try and get a fresh perspective but I mean the the filter bubble thing isn't a unique Think that, well, it's it's more profound now, I guess. Like there's some there's a good talk on TED, but yeah, about filter bubbles, and they were saying like how back in the day, even though you bought you'd buy, say like you would buy the Guardian, I'm a Guardian reader, or I'm a Daily Mail reader. At least you would go to the shop and you'd see the stall of twenty papers, so you know at least you would know then. Okay, I'm buying this perspective, but I can see yes. other perspectives. Whereas on Google or on YouTube or something like that. Uh, like for example, there's there's just bunch of what a good example was back in like the Egypt, uh, uh, what are they called the rising where they were uh, doing protests a couple of years ago. They did things where someone who was uh, like a traveled a lot, they googled Egypt, and they were showing a bunch of travel related uh, stuff. Someone who was engaged in politics, googled Egypt, and they're saying like, oh, Egypt's on fire, all all, this, all the news articles, and so it's like it's even in the search results that you on Google that uh, kind of feedback into. Uh, what your perspective because it's just what you google all google knows about you is what you've done in the past and then they'll project project into the future and so everything you can do to kind of uh, disrupt what google knows about you or youtube again it's kind of same thing or facebook whatever all these giant companies and you can do to kind of disrupt what they know about you allows you to get a, even if it's not a new perspective you get a kind of agnostic perspective where they're not they're not actively filtering what you see they're just showing you the base kind of thing do you know what I mean isn't it so weird that like you could know a hundred people in real life and be very interpersonal with them and share ideas and all of that jazz but the one mechanism that knows you best is your search engine and your social media use yeah like if you if you could come you don't know what porn I watch <laughs> exactly, exactly. But isn't it so strange? No, I always use incognito. <laughs> What's incognito porn like? You don't know what incognito is. 
you need to do is you open up a private browser so Google doesn't track what your uh, oh, okay, so it's like your mystery to... Yeah, yeah, so it's like your standard Google browser, you're logged in, or even if you're not logged in, it'll know all the cookies you've interacted with over until the last time you cleared your cookies, which could, some people could be years, could be months, whatever. Uh, right. What you can do is you open up a brand new browser, so it's like this is the first time someone's ever come to this browser. Ah. And so then that's when I type in dirty Japanese, whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Do you remember when we went to Japan? Oh, great trip, man. How many times have you been to that country? Uh, three times now. So I was there first time, 10 days in Tokyo. And within that 10 days, I did uh, I climbed Mount Fuji. That was like two and a half days, we'll say. And then I went with you a second time. You, me, you and Shane for like 18 days, 19 days, something like that. And we went to what? Tokyo, Hiroshima. Nagoya? Nagoya, Osaka, Kyoto. Great trip. And then last year... I was traveling around a lot, so I went. So I went. To, uh, I, I was hiking in the US, and then I went to uh, a month in Thailand, a month in Vietnam, I went uh, two weeks in Philippines, and I spent like ten days in Tokyo again. Uh, but I love Tokyo. Is my favorite place. I think in the world. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I I've never been bored there. You know what I mean? It's just just there's so much going on, and for I, I travel solo a lot. Obviously, we went. We travel together, but. Japan for a solo traveler is like the best in the world because they just they don't want to talk to you. <laughs> That's so true. I was and, so surprised by the the lack of interaction when yeah. I went over there with natives. Where it's like, I I was baffled that there wasn't even nearly a rudimentary understanding or at least willingness to communicate with mm. you in English. That blew me away. So th- the thing with Japan especially is, they probably the younger generation probably do speak English, but there's like the um, Japanese culture there's like a a shame of appearing bad at something at a skill so they won't like you lose face yeah something like that so like if you go to Thailand or something even if they're shit at English they'll talk to you like because they don't give a they just want to talk to someone like right. whereas in Japan even if they they probably could speak better English than someone in Thailand or wherever they don't want to go to someone who they view as a like an expert because they're a native speaker and speak their version of English because they feel like, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. Let's commit Harry Curry right now. <laughs> what is it about Japan that attracted you? Uh, well, there are like, plenty of things. So, like, history and uh, the pop culture, like the, the, the video game and the anime, kind of back so the history. I've always been interested in that in some degree. Uh, so, like, I was in London at the time working there and I don't know if you ever think about this it's like back at the time I, I was in the mind so I was like I'd love to go to Japan but like I, I need to go there at least two or three weeks to get a good good solid grasp of it but then I was like no I have five holiday days left for this year I'm just gonna fucking go to Japan and I think I just maybe just like a bank holiday and that, if, if anyone's thinking about going traveling that's that's the biggest uh, advice I'd say just fucking a week is fine You'll be jet lagged, maybe whatever. I kind of don't believe in jet lag, but we won't get into that. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, it's like people put off a trip, a, a trip they desperately want because they can't have, go there for three weeks or a month. Go there for a week; it's fine. Uh, like I and I went there to Japan, and Tokyo is yeah. It just seems as this. I I love going to. It's weird. I I love a bit of everything. I love. Get out into the wilderness where I'm by myself, but I also love giant anonymous cities. I love the whole spectrum. 
and Tokyo is as giant and anonymous as you can get in many respects. Maybe New York could be on par, but they speak English, so it's kind of not as in your face in some regards. Uh, so I, kind of, I loved, I love getting to Japan, into Tokyo, and just exploring. Like I always, what I always do is the first time I get to a new place, I always take one day with no agenda, and I just walk for like eight hours, ten hours, and just get lost in the city. Uh, and, no, it's it's the best way to get into a city because uh, you just for one thing you know you, I go from my hotel and I just okay I'm gonna go left or right. Yeah, it's, it's it's nearly like surrendering to the idea of immersion rather than I have to go to here and do this English speaking tour. It's yeah, just, yeah, boom, get out there. Yeah, exactly. And like I I go to, so I'll check some museums or all the, the things you want to do afterwards. But some of the best days I've had has been walking randomly through a city like when I was in Ulamatar like I, I walked down some random road and there was just there was a an abandoned uh, jet plane there on the side of the road and they had just built around it they didn't take it away and I was like what the, why is this doing here uh, and I was like they, what, that wasn't to me that's like a landmark that's amazing that's in Mongolia it yeah Mongolia yeah like to me that was like a landmark but it wasn't anywhere like it wasn't like on the tour things to see but that was like the most amazing shit I've ever seen in my life it's a, a abandoned jet plane and they just built like tower blocks instead of moving it they just built around it wow. and so I, I, when I walked through the tower blocks and like you see people just looking at you it's like what is this guy doing here like who is this white guy like, <laughs> <laughs> and that in, in the tower they're kind of more uh, not as familiar with tourists obviously so it's like it's more uh, in your face there I'd never even heard of that place until you went there, and then I was like, "Jesus Christ, Pa is out there!" Like, <laughs> I, that was never, that was never. It's a very interesting city, man. It's because uh, Mongolia used to be uh, a communist si- satellite, but it's an ancient Buddhist uh, culture. So nowadays, it's like they have these really ancient. It, the city is a weird mix of really ancient Buddhist temples, next to like decaying Soviet, like, uh, giant buildings next to giant cathedrals to capitalism because that's that's what they are now essentially really? so it's just weird mix of everything and it's kind of just it's interesting in that regard like just to go around and uh, look at it and it, uh, in terms of hiking it's amazing because you can just they have a i think they have yeah like half the population so half the population lives in Ulaanbaatar they're the ninth, ninth largest country the eighth largest I can't remember like they're a giant country and then like so they have a million in Ulaanbaatar and a million in the rest of the country which in terms of like population density is just nothing. So literally outside of the capital, there's like you will you is can that walk. What they through, call the steps. The, the, yeah, the Mongolian step is like towards the so you have the desert up north kind of uh, and the step kind of below that. Uh, but yeah, I, I didn't venture too far into that, but I was up to, to kind of a national uh, forest nearby Ulaanbaatar because uh, kind of if you want to go across the step, you probably need a guide. But I much prefer just. Self-sufficient. self-sufficient everything on my pack and I, everything on my bag on my back sorry and I can just go and do it and even though the, the scope of the adventure is smaller in many ways it's bigger because you're by yourself as opposed to you're in a jeep with some guy he's like hey let's go this way you're like yeah, yeah it's fine uh, so I kind of I, I always limit the scope of the adventure if, if even if it, even if it means you know, like the step would be a grander thing to, to view but I'd rather just if I can do it something by myself is better in that regard anyway back to Tokyo can I ask um, so you've been to Japan three times yep like just being perfectly honest would you have enjoyed the time that you spent there in solitude more than the time 
me and Shane went no, no, no. what was it like uh, so like I, I love Saudi, uh, traveling by myself because it's kind of um, there's, there's, there's two things so like when you're traveling with people your sphere of what's possible is bigger but the sense of enjoying what you get for it is slightly diluted whereas if you're by yourself your sphere of possibility is smaller but every victory is your own victory is that because, like, if you're with a group, you have to come to some sort of consensus? No, with... I mean, it's literally, if you're by yourself, going to a restaurant, ordering in a foreign language, is a victory. Whereas if yeah. you're with friends going to a restaurant, you can fuck around with each other. and stuff. Yeah, you're like, like, <laughs> like, you're never awkward because you can just bounce off your friend or your friends, whatever, and you can kind of just have fun with the situation. Whereas if you're by yourself, you feel like a toddler, just like, yeah. oh, I want some sushi. <laughs> and, but, so even though, like, the, the sphere of opportunity is smaller, even though small things feel more, uh, not as diluted because you've done it. Like, if you, go, if you get to Subway by yourself in Japan to A to B, I did that, you know what I mean? Whereas if, so we're, if we're, we're friends... If we get lost, it, it doesn't matter. Then we can just, we, we'll always have each other. Yeah, and even like when we went to Japan, essentially me and Shane were passengers on your trip because you were like, this This is like a good Well, I was, I was there before, so I, I knew Tokyo. And exactly. I know what you mean. But I mean, it's like, yeah, like kind of, yeah, I kind of, in, in planning it. it out I, to an extent. Yeah, and I hate planning a lot. I, I, generally, like, I think we had, a, we had a good balance there on that trip, I think, because essentially what I did was, Here's Tokyo, here's we, all the cities we are. We obviously, we had to plan the train journeys in between. Then everything else was just going to let blocks open. We said, okay, here's, we said, like, here's a list of 50 things we could do in Tokyo. Yes. We didn't say, we're going to do this today, this No, today. that's very true. And it's uh, like the only, the only point I was trying to make no, no, is that going to, going to a place that was so foreign to me, it felt like I still had train and wheels on. Yeah, because yeah. you had been there before and there was structure rather than me having to think, fuck it, what am I doing tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You were like, these are some suggestions, which was brilliant for us, but I I appreciate what you said there much more now. Like, it makes sense why mm. travelling by yourself and exploring things by yourself is so intrinsically valuable. Yeah, yeah, because it's... It pushes your, you outside your comfort zone just inherently. Because, uh, like, if, if you go with so much of your friends, you're going to explore something you all kind of want to do. Yeah. Uh, whereas I don't know like we, we did some crazy stuff in Japan like, do you remember Shane got too sick one night we went up sex show yeah so so the night before I think we went to Roppongi yeah and we went out and had one of those wild nights I ended up the next morning walking through what I remember as a Japanese office <laughs> I was walking through an office I think out of my mind drunk looking around at Japanese people working away at 10 o'clock in the morning and I think at the end of that whole debacle I was down 1300 euro I'm not really sure why but the next day me you and Shane were supposed to go to this like weird Japanese sex show or sex party Shane was too sick to go and Shane would have been so sickened because he is a degenerate at the end of the day I'm a degenerate <laughs> no problem saying it I went there by myself the first time. Yeah. And I was like, this is some debauched shit. <laughs> I remember, I remember my overwhelming memory of that is you saying to me, 
getting too real, man. It's getting too yeah, real. Yeah, it, it was like five o'clock in the morning and everybody was sucking dicks. There I was, was like, where did some, all the dicks appear from here? Some and there's a lad fisting his own ass on that stage. Was, that was the bit where I was like, wow, this is... It's getting too real, man. Yeah. It was, <laughs> your man had half... Like, he had a full fist up his arse and at least half a forearm. Mm. And it was like half five in the morning and I was just like, oh, man, this is... This is very real now. Like, I was just like, I don't know, I think I might have to go to bed now. I'm a bit hungover. Yeah. And I'm just like, this is Tokyo, man. This is, yeah. this is something to experience. And I, it, and you're right, it was crazy shit. Like, just... Uh, just it was an amazing tra- experience. Tranny sucking each other off in the corner. Just yeah, people yeah. tied up and whipped. Uh, me and you there just in our t-shirt and jeans going yeah. what are we doing lads we were like we were like the only people who weren't in yeah. BDSM we to, you, they, they have rules where it's, you pay an extra premium if you're not wearing a costume so people go in costume uh, but obviously uh, fuck that like I'm not going to buy a costume I was dressed as a western <laughs> yeah exactly uh, but yeah the night before that was hilarious as well just uh, just drunken night in Rapangi. I remember yeah we Shane we lost Shane doesn't drink that much, like. Yeah. Uh, we lost him frequent, fairly early, but remember me and you, we were jumping around places, and then I lost you when I went down outside and I saw Shane. I had work at nine o'clock in the <laughs> office, man. I had to, I had to get that report on Johnson's desk by fucking ten a.m. or I was goosed. Yeah, can I, Shane was starfish in a puddle. Yeah. In the ground, <laughs> and I was at this point off my tits, and I was like, oh fuck, I have to carry Shane home. <laughs> And like I was in no position to do that. Like I, I carried him. I remember just like the scene missing. Then I remember like me and <laughs> me, me and him, like passed out inside of the footpath. And he, these two Japanese police officers or traffic guards, I don't know what they were, they came up to us and like we were just conked, like dead on the side of the road. And I think they, I must have given them like a the card for a hotel or something like that. And they put us in a taxi, sent us home. You know that's Japan. Like that's just they're they're so nice in that regard like Tokyo is safe as fuck like you can do it safest biggest city I've ever I've ever been in and like even in my state I was surprised how I wasn't taken advantage of more Mm. you know what I mean yeah yeah but it's like well yeah if you were in some other city like you you, the water to be gone you yeah exactly wander into the wrong area date yeah but over there I was just I was amazed by how even in my ridiculous state I was so confident of the fact that regardless of how bad I get, I'm not going to die from my own mm. negligence, which was an amazingly refreshing thing to, to experience in a, in a different place. Yeah. Um, but uh, Japan is a kind of a special uh, place in my heart because that's where I first climbed Mount Fuji. And that was the first time I've ever done any serious like hiking or outdoor kind of stuff. Like, you know me when I was a kid, I wasn't sporty at all. Like, uh, so it, uh, so that was like when I was like 25, 26, I guess. I can't remember exactly. But I climbed Mount Fuji. And Mount Fuji isn't that difficult. You did it. We did it the second time we were there. Uh, like you, What's that saying about Fuji? Oh, the, the, what? The, the, a wise man climbs Mount Fuji. An idiot climbs it twice or something like that. I've climbed it twice. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's, I loved it. I loved it. Both times I've done it. It's a great time. Like... Uh, like the, the first time I climbed Mount Fuji, like you see eight year old men and women climbing, yeah. it's like it's not. Especially it's, if the weather is yeah. okay, it's it's not challenging. In the climbing, yeah, between July and September, you're fine to go. And if you don't get a, a suit, like we, we started, it was raining, but it cleared up pretty quickly. And it was fine after that. Uh, but when I went, it was perfect conditions. And I got to the top 
uh, like usually you stay overnight in one of the huts uh, start your time at like 2 or 3am so you time it so that we get to the the rim of Mount Fuji at sunrise so you get to see the sunrise on top of Mount Fuji which is really cool like I, I still think it's top five life experiences mm. ever like it's so hard to say what's the best thing you've ever done yeah that, for sure like it, it I loved it so much just because it was like I was so fascinated by Japan for years because it's such a it's such a unique culture where they were able to nearly protect themselves from Western influence yep. for so long and they were able to carve out this unique place yep, in the for world sure. for themselves. And like climbing it with two of my like my childhood best friends was just amazing. And one of the one of my favorite like uh, memories from the top of the mountain was so me and Shane were waiting for the sunrise and it was like freezing cold. And Shane was sat beside two girls from New Zealand, <laughs> yeah. I think, I believe. And so, like, I was so cold at the time that I couldn't even really contribute any way to the conversation. So I was just sat there shivering, waiting for the sun to come up. And I heard Shane talking to these two girls, and he was like, uh, oh, yeah, do you know, how's, how, how are you getting on? Do you know, what brings you to Japan? What brings you to the, the top of the world? And uh, the girls were like, oh, yeah, we're, we're just on... Uh, we're on like a, a hen, like a, an, old, an old hen, you know what I mean? Like a hen party. And Shane was like, oh, I've never heard of a, like a, 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 no, actually, they said a stag and a hen party. And Shane just went, oh, I've never, I've never heard of one of those. It's like, oh yeah, you know, like a, a bride's about to get married and all their friends go off and just have like a crazy time. And Shane's like, oh, that's such a, that's such a unique idea. Like, uh, do you want to tell me more? And they went into detail for two or three minutes and I was just listening to this in the freezing cold. And then Shane just brought it in and he goes, oh yeah, in Ireland we call that a stag or a hen. And it just killed the conversation. Because I think they called it like boxer hen. Yeah, like you could definitely infer what they're talking about. They left and Shane was just clueless as to why the situation broke down. It's one of my best memories on top of Fuji. Like, Do you remember when his hat blew away? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> That's my favourite one. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry, what I was going to say. Uh, the first time I climbed Mount Fuji, that's, I was on top and I was just eating peanut butter out of a jar. And I was like, this is pretty fucking cool. And that's kind of, to me, that's planted the seed of uh, hiking from there. And I've done a whole, whole bunch of stuff since then, like you. And so kind of, Japan also has that kind of special place in my heart for that, you know. Why did you initially get into the idea of hiking, solo trekking, and like pushing yourself where... Like, being honest, it's not a normal pathway to use your free time. Like, I, I respect it so much, yeah. but it, I don't even know if it's something that I could do. Like, what, what was your initial attraction to that mm. whole experience? Um, well, as I said, the, I did Mount Fuji, and that was the genesis of it. And from there, I wasn't focused on hiking. More, I was more focused on trekking or mountaineering. So I did, like, Kilimanjaro after that. I did the with Shane. I did the three three peak challenge. We climbed the three highest peaks in England, Scotland, Wales in twenty four hours. Uh, I attempted. I can't remember. I did, yeah. Then and then I kind of transitioned more into uh, like hiking in general. I think. When you say hiking, what do you mean? Because my hiking and your hiking are probably different ideas. Yeah, I get, uh, maybe I guess so. Yeah, there's, again, there's no right or wrong answer. It's like. There's camping, which is you just go to a place, set up a tent, and you just camp out that night. 
hiking to me is so there's hiking and true hiking so hiking could be you do a loop uh you just, hiking could be you just, go, you just go for like a two-hour hike that could be that could be true hiking like but my own kind of look at more like true hiking that's t-h-r-u like you go from a to b so you hike through a destination uh could you give an example of that yes yeah, so like if you do wicklow way in ireland where you start in uh certain uh, just below in lock and you end up in sunny or something like that so you go there's a an a to b and you go through that and it's like a clear trail yeah so well i mean there's different ways of doing it but it's it's, it's all hiking in some regards just a matter of there's waymark trails there's bushwhacking where you kind of just you forge your own trail for example in scotland they have this thing called coast to coast challenge where in scotland they have um you can wild camp anywhere so you can just pitch a tent within reason in like some back garden and they just have a challenge where uh, you go from the east coast to the west coast and you just hike across it and you can there's no trail there's no set trail you can if you want to go over that mountain you go over that mountain if you want to go this way you go that way and uh, you just pitch a tent anywhere you want uh, but obviously there, then there's like waymark trails where there's like a fixed trail for something like I attempted the Appalachian Trail in the US which goes through 13 states and like 2,200 something miles um, I quit after like a month um, so I this was last year in 2019, started in the middle of March, thereabouts. I uh, did 375 miles, so I went from Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee. And most people quit because, to me, the main reason people quit is injury, uh, finance, they just, I can't afford this. Uh, or they just, uh, yeah, they just, for whatever reason, they just said, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in this anymore. I quit, not for any of those reasons. I, physically, I was the best I've ever felt in my life. Uh, financially I was fine so I could continue on for the next five months continue hiking that thing if I wanted to and I wasn't bored of the trail but I was looking up once I started the trail there was like this whole bunch of unknowns where it's like okay I don't know if I am I physically fit enough mentally capable of doing this and once I kind of after the first two or three weeks I was like oh, yeah I, I can do this then it kind of just came to the point okay do I want to do the same thing for the next five months and at that point I was saying I the, the answer was no I do a trick where I flip a coin and uh, even if the coin comes out against what I say and I just got my gut reaction and it came out against what I was saying but I was like I'm gonna go the opposite I do this all the time I think it's like you delude yourself into thinking the, the coin means everything the coin means everything and then just you just listen to that first second of yeah the, either uh, elation or yeah. regret and it's like Fuck it, I'm just gonna go with the elation. Yeah, exactly. That's man, that's something I respect a lot about you. Where it's it's something that a lot of people do, where they'll tell people their plan, and they'll try to do their plan, and even if they realize on the way that this is not what I want to be doing, most people because they've laid down these foundations of expectations with other people, they'll pursue a course that maybe intrinsically they know is not correct. Mm. Whereas you told people what you were going to do, but you got to a point and you said, fuck it, man. It's like, this is not what I want to do for the next five months. Let yeah. me do something more appealing. I That's so refreshing. I love failure. But what you find out is like, uh, so my plan was, okay, I can either spend this next five months hiking this trail or I can go do my own thing uh, and kind of create my own like websites or explore that kind of stuff. That's what I did. I 
literally went to New York for a few days, then popped over to Thailand. As I said, like th- Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, Japan. And in that time, I wasn't just faffing about going to parties, uh, fucking ladyboys. I was just... <laughs> I, was just <laughs> I was just... I was, that was the weekends. <laughs> exactly. I was just going to coffee shops and like uh, teaching myself different things to like uh, coding and like the kind of back-end stuff. I was familiar with the kind of front-end in some capacity. So now I can... Uh, build my own websites like rudimentary stuff like you know uh, oh, so, so you literally you can do all that like, I mean like you, like you wouldn't hire me but I can do it for what I want to do, do yeah, you know? yeah, I yeah. Always, I'm very comfortable with the idea like it's like you start with what you want to achieve okay then I can learn what I need to achieve that you know what I mean you don't need to learn all the programming to be to build a website just learn what you need to learn and yeah, say okay yeah. what do I want to build okay I'll learn that now so I don't learn I don't learn it's about learning everything Unless you want to do it as a profession. I just didn't realize, like when you were talking earlier about your website, I, I didn't realize that you built it from scratch, essentially. I just thought you... Well, I wouldn't say scratch, but like you just do what I learned, what I need to learn to get yeah. it online and get people using it. Um, so, but doing that, which was great, then I came back to Ireland and I got a new job, which... Did, but going through that process, I realized, actually, no, I fucking love hiking. I love long distance hiking. And so now I'm going through a process. So after that, I kind of uh, wanted to reorient. I was going to hike the PCT, uh, which is Pacific Crest Trail. It goes from the Canadian border to the, uh, oh, sorry, Mexican border to the Canadian border. It's like similar distance, uh, like, I don't know, two and a half thousand miles, something like that. It's like Biggie V2, Park. It's just east v west. Like. Yeah, exactly. People say the Appalachian Trail is harder because it has more elevation gain, but the PCT is couple hundred miles longer so it kind of evens out overall but whatever it doesn't matter my point is that uh i've now kind of at least for this point in my life i kind of just uh reoriented re i've reoriented my life to focus more on long distance hiking and i've and because because i've quit the at and went the other way i now know exactly what i want do you know what i mean so it's like some people learn because they know they deep they know uh, deep down that's what i want but i think most people learn because they say, I, I don't want this, do you know what I mean? I want, it's this the best is, way to learn. Yeah, exactly. And people go to uh, try and error. It's like, okay, okay, I, I quit the AT, I regret that, now I'm going to go back and do more hiking. Fine. doesn't matter. Like, I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm just going to go do more of hiking. I think what you said about travel at the start of the podcast as well is so important for people to nearly internalize. And it's not just with travel, it's with everything. It's like... Yeah. You said that you literally had less than a week to go on some bold new adventure that you knew you wanted to do. But, and like I'm a victim of this as well, where my thought process is no, everything has to be perfect. I need to give myself the right amount of time, the right amount of finances, the right amount of leeway to fail. But it's so important just to take that first step and see where it takes you because. To some extent, in different areas of our lives, we all get a little bit paralyzed with, this is what I want. I, I know what I want intrinsically. The paradox of choice. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's a psychological phenomenon. It's, it's studied. Like, it's like, uh, if you just have two pairs of jeans to buy in a store, you pick an easy decision. You go to a store and there's 20, you're like, oh, what the, I don't know which one do I pick now? That's called the paradox of choice. Yeah, I mean, it's paradox, I don't know, there's... I think it's paradox choice. Maybe I'm wrong. Look it up. But you know, there's something out there about the place to that. Where it's where like if there's too much options, you just 
you don't know which one to pick because you have fear of saying oh, I picked the wrong one fuck I picked yeah, the wrong it's, one it's nearly like you're you're nearly paralysed by information but thirsty for real knowledge mm. and you don't like knowledge comes from doing essentially yeah. and you don't know what's right for you until you fucking try and fail and course correct yeah. like anybody who's got to where they wanted to be in life has fucked up a multitude of times that is just under the surface and people just don't seem to realise that it's all part of the process like yeah most people don't realise that failing is quicker than indecision it's just uh, like it's, my background is in product management where again it's working tech companies and I kind of outlined the uh, why the what and the when of when stuff gets built so it's all about prioritisation and okay why are we doing this as opposed to that and Sometimes it's better to just, okay, this is such a small piece of work. We could debate it for a week and see well, what, what's, what's the benefit, what's the, or we could just build it and see how people react to it. Yeah. And I think apply that kind of principle to your mind or your life where you can just say, okay, I could debate, okay, uh, a week in Japan versus a month in Japan. Just go for a week, and if you don't like it, then you know, and you can don't have to worry about the other three weeks. If you love it, do what I did, go back three times. Yeah. You know, and so it's, it's better, just something is better than, look, uh, what's the Voltaire quote? Uh, perfect is the enemy of good. It's better to be good than perfect. Or indecision is the thief of opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Something, something presents itself, and you just think, oh, jeez, maybe it's not the exact time mm. to fucking take this leap, but you don't know when you'll get that little opportunity again, even like mentally, physically, emotionally, yep. or wherever you are in life, if it presents itself and it's a possibility and you feel intrinsically that it's something that you want to at least explore. Cause yep. like, like with me, uh, like the stuff that I'm into now, I wasn't into in five years and I hope the stuff that I'm into now, for sure. I'm, I have no interest in five years cause I've explored it to the point where, it, it just is what it is yeah. like the joy of life is just to fucking ramble through and accept the idea that you're a beginner and being a beginner is fucking exciting yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was Kev's uh, whatever, what the fuck you call that uh, I'm a whore for the vape these days yeah, like the, the lockdown the one the one or two things that it's fucking showed me is just caffeine I'm an absolute slave to that and nicotine as well like i just i didn't start drinking coffee down. until i was in vietnam last year and now i'm hooked <laughs> it's outrageous yeah. isn't it? it's beneficial in its own way but i know what you mean it's like i don't want to develop new habits but sometimes you just have to it's the same as everything though especially with like stimulants where it's like i suppose as well it depends on your mentality and your mindset but i know that i over rely on certain stimulants throughout the week throughout the day mm. and it's so important just to be able to nearly take that week of a detox where you're like, right, I'm not going to talk that vape for seven days. That's what, that's what I'm agreeing with myself or go off coffee for seven days and just reset your, your reaction to that substance. Yeah. Exact same like fucking when people go off social media, two or three days later, they realize that their reactiveness and their, the way they perceive the world is all based on how they're ramping up their dopamine to a ridiculous extent taking in random information if yeah. that makes sense social media thing is interesting though I think because 
they are just extensions of ourself in a sense like people kind of blame social media a lot saying oh it's injecting this negative stuff into into us but i think it's just accentuating aspects of ourselves uh like so i i'm, I'm very the same way i was talking about like joe having different accounts for google that kind of stuff with your phone like you can do the same type of thing with just turning off your notifications and just set expectations for yourself and for other people it's like i'm very much of the opinion that um again i'm a hypocrite but it's like i, I don't expect People have an expectation of me to be on call all the time. I don't give like, I can message me fine, but if I don't get back to you for five days, that's not, that's not anything negative or it's indifferent. It's like, uh, and obviously for the, I'm a hypocrite because if I message someone, like, why, why the fuck am I fine? Isn't it weird the way you, like there's always that distance for that? Like I'm a, I fall into this thing where I, like I go for long walks and I might bring five people on that walk, and the four people who don't answer, I'm like. I just you catastrophize things in your head where you're like oh, they don't care about me they don't want to talk to me but it's a ridiculous way of thinking because when the roles are reversed and I get two missed calls from from a person where I can't accept the call I'm yeah. like who do you expect that like what what am I their fucking secretary yeah this is bullshit so I'm yeah I'm very aware of that now and I kind of uh inverted my own mind to just say okay yeah it doesn't matter what they do or don't do so it's kind of you get your own expectations and your expectations of other people and you can do that all way. and so i do like one thing i did went through my facebook uh friends and i just went so i was like do you want to think the happy birthday on facebook it's yes. like people write on my wall they say happy birthday patrick yeah, that's great but i mean if we walked past each other in the street we would look the other way and so I kind of I this was like a year or two ago. I, I kind of made, made a, like an arbitrary rule to myself. It's like I'll only ever directly message someone happy birthday as opposed to writing their wall. That's man. Because like that's what Facebook became, especially for our generation. We're both thirty one. Like Facebook was the social media platform for so long, and then in the last probably two years, three years, it's just become this weird. Like it's something that I never look at facebook yeah but when you go on and you look at somebody's page it's just happy birthdays from 11 months ago exactly. absolutely so now i my rule is yeah i only message someone directly happy birthday and my rule is okay if i'm not comfortable messaging this person directly happy birthday why am i comfortable doing it publicly on their wall you know what i mean so so social that, approval so now i don't do it essentially i just message people who i want to message like and i've got i've gone through all my friends and i've unfollowed everyone who i wouldn't be comfortable directly messaging one-to-one and so now my feed is just people who I would message one to one, and there's some like hiking groups and uh, other groups that I engage with uh, because, for whatever reason, they're uh, they're just they're interesting in some some regards to what I want to do in the future. Like, uh, but so now my I've tailored my Facebook feed to be have some utility as opposed to just a bunch of I don't care if you have kids, fuck off, I don't care. You got married, it's just random or if I met who was in school with ten years ago. Yeah. Uh, so it's like. People obviously get despondent with uh, social media and so they just go, fuck this and delete everything. Uh, but then there's like an element of FOMO in that. And I think you maybe just come back crying to it and it's like you're back on as normal. Mm-hmm. So I think if you actively and like engage with it and tailor your notifications and who you're following, all that kind of stuff, so that and curate what your feed is, your wall is, whatever, it can actually become a tool as opposed to a, a weight on you, you know? That's so true, isn't it? And it's, it's something that like most people wouldn't 
think about doing it's something that i haven't done like with with facebook or instagram or whatever sort of social media platform you look at the same as everything in life it's like if you're taking in random things expect random results good or bad mm. like you just you can't you can't control that scattergun that you're you're exposing yourself to the exact same the way if you were going to look at your nutrition plan during the week very rarely do we apply the same focus of what we're taking in on a caloric basis or a macro basis into the digital realm where and like I'm guilty of it as well where you will just expose yourself to a plethora of things good or bad and like the shitty thing is even a cool person you can see what they do online and it can influence how you think about them even though you know who they are in real life because they're it's like especially for close people maybe you might know them in real life and know them in an authentic way and then you see how they're trying to portray their life in an ideal way and when Mm. you see that gap you judge them you do you you do it's just it's a weird human trait and it's it's fucked because like as you said there it's completely in our wheelhouse to to use it as a tool yeah but i mean it's kind of i kind of think in some ways we we kind of know too much about our friends that like like when we were kids I wouldn't know where you were. Like, I'd say, okay, I'll go to these five places and I'll just hope my friends are there. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I'd go to Liam's house, go to the billion sites or wherever you hang out, I'll go to your house. <laughs> oh, I love it, man. And it's like, well, my friend's out here now, so I guess I'll just go home. Yeah. And, and so now we know exactly where everyone is and we can hook up, uh, like, connect to each other, like, easily. I think we know a bit too much about everyone. Like, kind of, there's no mystery to our friends or family anymore. It's like... What I, what I always disliked is like especially with the limerick crew when like let's say if you're extensively involved in social media and you meet people once or twice a year if you're somebody who's invested a lot in your online platform whatever it is there's nearly an assumption that people know your stories Mm. rather than engaging in authentic chat it's like so what have you been up to man what are you into it's like oh did you not see my last 10 posts and it's a, it's a weird thing where it's a dance in your head. Like, it's all in my head. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's not that it's real, but... No, I know what you mean. It's like... That's why I kind of try and... Uh, it's hard to get out of that. I know what you mean. It's like, I want to meet you at Christmas or uh, wherever and... As you are. What do you mean? Yeah, I know. Sorry, but... but uh, at but, Christmas as I am and then we'll talk. Yeah, yeah. But, I, like, any big life event... I will know before I meet you. Do you know what I mean? Generally speaking, whereas there's no more serendipitous, uh, spontaneous kind of. I meet you at Christmas. It's like oh, yeah, I had a kid. It's like what? That's crazy. That, that doesn't exist anymore. You know what I mean? And, yeah, and maybe so, it shouldn't exist, but there is something. That I think we. You missed we, all, we all share overshare. Even like I barely use social media, but even I overshare. Like, yeah. You know? uh, and as well, it's like the reaction from your friends of telling like a positive move in your life in whatever direction is positive for you it's so much more like humanely rewarding when you see them go oh, fuck them in fair play that's cool I, yeah yeah i didn't realize you were into that rather than you got 20 likes for having a child yeah exactly yeah uh pat as well like it's it's important for me to draw attention to the fact that you're 
not only the person that introduced me to Patrice, which, like, however it happened, I'll be eternally grateful, but um, you also introduced me to one of the weirdest ideas and weirdest practices that I've ever experienced, but one of the most beneficial, um, using float tanks. Mm. When did you discover those? I would think, like, everyone else in the world through Joe Rogan. <laughs> Uh, like literally the site in Dublin they reference Joe Rogan on their website it's hilarious uh, so I was living down by the canal uh, just must have been maybe I don't know like a 10-15 minute walk away from that place I can't remember it's Harvest Moon I think it's Harvest called Moon. yeah uh, and they do float tanks there uh, and so I was like it's 10 minutes 10-15 minutes from my house I'll buy a gift pass or whatever it is and check it out that's what I did so it's like when you buy it individually it's so expensive it's like 60 euro like this is ridiculous but fuck it I've haggled them down so much that at one stage I was getting midday floats for like 15 euro yeah and I was thinking if you buy in bulk it's actually quite reasonable but to buy one at a time is, is to like try it out and I'm not going to buy 10 because I've never done it before you know what I mean uh, so I tried it out and it was very interesting like it's it's a very unique singular experience it's just like what the hell is this like I've never experienced this before and like the first hour I did, like I think everyone has a similar experience where like maybe the first 10, 15, 20 minutes, you're just uh, more concerned on the actual physicality or the, the context in which you're in. You're like, I'm in a tank naked in the middle of Leeson Street, wherever the fuck it is. It's like it, was, you have to, it takes a while to get out of that, you know. Uh, but once you get past that, then yeah, it's, it's, it's a great way of just uh, being introspective, uh, great relaxation, you get the magnesium in your skin, that kind of stuff and yeah i just found it very relaxing and i've after that i was like this is great uh, you, you come back feeling refreshed and at the time i was doing some like uh, very simple meditation and it kind of helped that and yeah so i, I after the first time i loved it I, and i bought like a i don't know like a 10 or 20 book pass and it wasn't it? No, you weren't living at the region crash. You weren't, you weren't crashing my place. There was a different place. So yeah, I think I brought you and Tiernan at different times uh, to come down and just, just try it out because they had two tanks. So I was like, well, why not just bring someone so long? Like Joe. Uh, Since sh- then, I've introduced at least six or seven people to it. Like, and yeah, yeah. I think I think it's one of those lovely experiences to when you experience it and like over time you see probably more benefits, but when you experience such a unique space and a unique way to spend your time, I think it's so vital to try and spread the word about the benefits and like the benefits are going to be different for each person. But the biggest thing that I got from it initially was the idea that like life is so on the go, on the go. You're always connected with your phone. You always have these things to do. You always have things that you're worrying about in the future, certain regrets in the past, but it's like, when you're truly alone with your mind and you you watch it think, you get an idea of what those thoughts are and how they're affecting you. Mm. And the tank is one of those rare spaces where you, if you experience those thoughts, they're undeniable in the tank. There's no distraction that you can reach for True. 20 minutes in because you have another 40 minutes <laughs> to sit with those thoughts, however comfortable or uncomfortable they are. Yeah, I mean, I've always been fairly introspective, let's say naturally, and again, when I'm out hiking, that's a very introspective thing as well. But yeah, it's like, the, when you're in a tank, it just augments that to like, by 10 or whatever, you know, it just, 
it's like there is nothing you can't even the weight of your body isn't even upon you like you and so it just strips away everything and it's literally just a very allows you to just uh, focus really intently for even an hour isn't that long like and it goes super quickly uh, once the first time uh, feels the first time is really longest that it ever feels because yeah. the first 20 minutes you're just, you're just getting used to the experience it's so novel yeah exactly but once you get that out of your mind and the second third time you go back it's like that uh, that, that hour will feel like 20 minutes do you know what I mean and uh, it's just again even if you people think you know you got these grand epiphanies like no you didn't it's not about that like you just just go in there spend an hour by yourself thinking whatever whatever you want and as well like it's it's probably the exact same with everything if you go in with incredibly Mm. high expectations you'll be disappointed but if you just go in and just go right whatever happens for the next 60 minutes it is what it is you'd be very surprised where your mind goes at certain points and how it's just easier to nearly notice that thoughts are thoughts and they just appear and you are hopefully like every like if anybody who practices meditation the the goal in a sense or at least the first goal is to realize that you are an observer of your thoughts your thoughts aren't you and the tank can just be a really really beneficial tool to see that in action to some extent and sometimes you'll get stuck on negative thoughts where you'll be in it for 20 minutes but it's so it's such a unique space that I would recommend anybody to try it once and just see if if it's something that might help you in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I totally agree. And again, even if you have negative thoughts, I think that's fine. Negative thoughts are good in their own way. It's like you need to confront those things, whatever you want to say. Like it's I might come to the opinion that you you're you're the inevitable output of all your inputs. It's so it's like uh you all you can kind of do is just control what you like you're talking earlier on like your media consumption that kind of stuff uh if you can control that like and feed into that that's something you consumed input like 20 years ago or 10 years ago can bu- bubble up today or tomorrow it's like there's a kind of um kind of a people nowadays want to consume something that to be immediately consumable joe in their mind even you yes. know and i'm very much of the opinion that just consume a bunch of stuff, let it sink down into into you, and it could be five years before it comes comes relevant to you. And and being a tank kind of I think brings those elements uh, out more because it's just again it's it's like meditation but just on way more focused and in depth. And so if you can if you can listen to the, your uh, observe observe your thoughts as you're talking about, you get to see more of the. And if you're coupled out with a wide, say like a, a wide variety of things you're in, consuming in terms of media or philosophy or whatever you want to say, everything like if you're in a wide, wide variety of things, then you can you see a lot more connections occur uh, in a kind of a confined space like a post tank. Whereas if you're out by living your day to day life, even if you're an introspe- introspective person like me, the the fog of day to day life just gets in the way. Uh, more often uh, and so it kind of allows you to dig deeper more quickly in many respects and it's one of those things that in modern society just isn't valued the way we we value input it's like 
we don't really value processing time like as you were saying there it's all about consumption consumption buy the new thing meet up with the new crowd read the new book watch the new movie and it's just nearly filling time whereas when you get into that tank whatever comes up is going to come up it's like you can't necessarily stop it especially Mm. those first few times and it's it's just really really interesting to see where your mind can go when it's untethered from day-to-day life and like the tank is just it's it's the most unique space i've ever been in and it's literally just a bath of epsom salts that's hopefully body temperature and you can't see and you can't hear but it's invaluable in in today's world where stimulus is at an all-time high especially Mm. pre pre pre-covid when you're just walking the streets living your life and like to an extent as well like the flow tank is an amazing space to do that but i imagine that a lot of people have been living lives on pure momentum until covid struck and for the last three months it's given you a slap in the face to say is this what i want to be doing for the rest of my life is this the safe option that i've been pursuing and now it can be taken away why the fuck wouldn't I try to do what I want to do to some extent? Yeah, and I think in many respects, I'm like a year ahead of the curve because that's where I was thinking like last year when I went on this hike and this traveling and that kind of stuff, that was my mindset. It's like at that point, I was kind of just bored with product management. It was like, and things like in the tech world, product management is like a really uh, coveted job. It's like people want it, you know, because uh, you are you have a lot of influence in many respects on the product like the website we want to call it uh and so uh and it's a great job because because you can essentially every day is different you're working on a whole bunch of different things really complex problems it's engaging working with great really intelligent people and you, from jobs i was in at least anyway i had like near complete autonomy and it's just i can do whatever i want essentially which is cool actually and it's great but it's like I was kind of just get bored of working towards someone else's vision as opposed to like working yeah. on myself, you know what I mean? And that's what I was saying about it, like you kind of, humans, you just inevitably fill to the context in which you're in. It's like you, you outgrow the job, you outgrow, even though that's like kind of a, a boundless job in many respects and uh, it's very coveted and it's, uh, it's very interesting at times, you just do it long enough, you just go, uh, you outgrow it and you go, okay, well, well I can, I have all these skills I can apply to something I can do myself, you know what I mean? Um, but that's, that's my train of thought there. What it's like, like the, just to grasp on the point that you made at the end there, the idea about growing something that you're doing for a set number of years, like the people who continue to find new things that interest them are the most fascinating people to mm. talk to. As in, if you meet somebody who was doing the exact same job 10 years ago, doing the exact same hobbies ten, as they were 10 years ago it's like man you like, like if you're content that's incredible yeah but you've missed out on a decade of mystery because like again when i look at my life like i have no kind of long-term vision where i'm like i want to be at the top of this mountain when i 50 years in the future yeah. i just try to focus on what fascinates the fuck out of me now and as I said, like five years ago, 
maybe even seven, eight years ago, I coached soccer professionally in America. I don't do that anymore because it doesn't obsess me. Now I'm just doing other things that just light that sort of flame in me. Yep. And I think it's really important just to examine what you're doing in the moment and think, is this what I want to do right now? Or is this what I was fascinated by in the past? But because I went down this path to a certain extent, I feel like I can't go back because people might deem that as a failure. Yeah, and in some ways I'm kind of like, there are people, they find their passion young and like this, like some like a teacher, maybe my sister's like, I think like she was like, to my mind, just a natural teacher and she was like born to be a teacher. And like, you kind of do, you can jealous, you're jealous of that because it's like, she's 100% content with that and she's just, that's this is my life, I'm fine with that. Uh, but I think I always think feel like I kind of wish that I had that. But again, it's I'm not gonna I'm not gonna artificially create it if I don't feel it. You know what I mean? And I don't look at people like I don't know something like uh, a doctor or something like that. I'm like imagine studying for seven years, whatever it is, and then even after getting a job for two or three years, and suddenly realize I fucking hate this. Yeah. Uh, and I think arts in that sense is an art, I did an arts degree as a background. I think it's good in that sense because it leads you wide open, I suppose, to funnel you in earlier on. And it gives you like a broad base of skills that can be applied across life in general. Uh, but I mean, like someone like someone studies engineering or something like that, they're kind of, they're more, more earlier funneled down a path. And then there's like the sunk cost fallacy where it's like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm in this now. Now I have to do this. Like I remember when I had my first job out of college, I was a, uh, a business analyst, which I mean, so I did undergrad in new media and English, did a master's in marketing consumption society, and worked as a business analyst. In essentially, was a product manager just by different name at the time, uh, and they, they literally only hired me because they were an educational startup and they wanted uh, a nerd essentially. Because I got like a bunch of A's in my master's, and I thought, oh, this guy can study, so he'll be a good proxy for our user. So we'll hire him as our like guinea pig user. Point Dexter. <laughs> oh, the masters was a joke, man. <laughs> uh, but we won't get into that. Uh, unless you want to. Uh, but um, yeah, so they hired me essentially as kind of just be a proxy for their user. I kind of learned the uh, product management ropes there. So then, like, I applied when I came out of university. I applied for like, I don't know, like sent out like a two hundred CVs. It's ridiculous. Like, uh, but for every reason, these guys gave me a chance. And it's actually, it's pretty good. Job. Looking back, it's a pretty good job to pay me. Nothing like, but it was a good job that uh, start off with. Uh, but it was like. I remember after the six month probation period, like I looking up, I was working super hard. It's like I was like, "Fuck yeah, yeah, yeah!" I fall asleep in this, and then they gave me the uh, the like permanent position, and then I remember just this horrendous feeling I had. I was like, "Oh shit!" And because I looked up, and I was like, "This is the rest of my life now." Yeah. Uh, and like I think when you go to college, university, like you, there's always an unknown ahead of you. Uh, now I was just like, oh shit, now I'm in a job. Per- now I got a permanent position and I looked up and I was like, oh fuck. <laughs> and I s- even though I, I loved uh, about maybe five, six years of Park band but I did after that, I always, th- I always think back on that it's sticky feeling. It only lasted maybe like a day or two, do you know what I mean? I like think it was just, just a kind of natural reaction, just oh shit, I have to, this, is, this could be my life. Like I could literally be working for the next 40 years, which is... Yeah, no, it makes me sick to think about. It. Uh, so, but I always, I always kind of focus in on that feeling sometimes, uh, where when when I'm making like big life decisions, 
like if, I, if I'm going to go hiking or something like that, it's like there's that voice saying, no, no, do the state of course, stay in this cushy job, it's paying you well, uh, low risk. And then he does, I just go, fuck it. And just think back to that feeling, I just go, fuck it, go like that. Yeah. Uh, I can remember when I was, <laughs> this is random, when I was a teenager, I, I, I was, I, th- I said, like, I'm going to live till I'm 100 years old. I kind of said to myself, if I live my life and had the mindset I'm going to live like I'm going to be 100 years old, I think there is some placebo effect that could make that more likely. And maybe that could be true. I, I don't know. But uh, when, I st- when I was in maybe 19 or 20, I was like, no, that's the wrong way of thinking. So now I live my life as if I'm going to die at 50. And so now, like, uh, so like last year, was it? Uh, maybe I was 29 at the time. I can't remember. I remember exactly, but let's say 20 years, 20, I said, uh, okay, well, I was thinking about like, quitting my job, this cushy job I had, going to go hiking, like throw everything away, essentially, like, you know, and I said, like, I used that as a, to, to reframe the mindset, I was like, okay, uh, I could be dead in 20 years, and 20 years is a tangible thing when you live 30 years, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because if you say, I'm going to, okay, I'm going to live another 50 years or 70 years, that seems, well, oh, that's ages away, you know, it doesn't matter, and so I kind of, do these bullshit, like knowingly bullshit things to my mind to create a kind of artificial delusion and urgency to make me do stupid things like leave a cushy job. I know they're stupid. Like, like there's no reason why you should do these things. Like, because everyone wants to, uh, like the, the easy thing is to do is just, yeah, just stay in a nice job and go on and not do a ridiculous hike across America. Mm. Uh, but the beautiful thing about life and the tragic thing about life is that, as far as we know, you only get one go at it. And that's an atheist side, that's why I agree as well. Whether you play it safe or whether you just fucking swing for the fences, essentially that's it. Yep. And it's just so, it's so important. Like, let's say uh, the idea of risk is so different to different people at different times in their life as for well. Sure. Because when you're younger, when you're single, when you've no family obligations, when you've no property obligations, when you've no loans, you're more free. But as society kind of piles these things up on you, mm-hmm. we feel in a sense artificially trapped. And that's such a trick of the mind. And like what you're talking about there, where you just give yourself this little bit of impetus to say, yep. maybe I only have two decades left. Maybe yep. I only have a fucking year left. Like, yeah, nobody exactly. fucking saw COVID coming. And <laughs> exactly. everybody, everybody had plans. 2020, man. New me. New diet. Fucking new relationship. New job. New fucking life. Boom. Corona. I should hey. be in the desert in California right now. Hiking <laughs> like a motherfucker. No, here I am. Talking to Kev. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's just... Uh, we... As humans, again, we, like we don't contemplate the idea that death is inevitable enough and any of these big ambitious things that we want to do with our lives will push it out on the long finger because we think it's the sensible thing to do but if you found out that your life wasn't going to be 50 years and you realized that you had 60 months left then what would you do with your life and how would you find meaning in a meaningless existence Mm -hmm. it's such a valuable thing just to not think of life as this everlasting thing because it's so finite and nobody knows when they're going to be fucking hit by a bus or struck down by a new fucking pandemic and uh, like i respect the fuck out of you because 
you've carved an unconventional path where some people will look at you and go, what the fuck is he doing? But other people who are just sick and tired of convention look at you and go, oh, man, that's what I want to be. Yeah, exactly. And like I've been in that in that office job looking at things like, man, I wish I was out there doing something crazy. Like, And I've, like, I used my 20s to travel a lot. So I did, I did a bunch of things. And like I kind of look... I, Sometimes I think I'm too hard on myself. I look back at my 20s, I'm like, oh, I wasted that. I could have done more. But actually, I look back, I did a bunch of crazy cool stuff, like, you know? Mm. Uh, so it's kind of like, but you need to be constantly pushing yourself. I think the idea that, like, happiness has a, a level of entropy to it, where, uh, so people say, oh, once you're content, you're, you're to be content. Uh, and then you're, once you're, once you're 100% content, then you're fine. But I think, what it, the law of entropy is that over time everything degrades slowly. So something, for example, would be if something's orbit of the Earth, it just every every year, every every orbit, it will very slowly get to, towards closer towards the Earth, and eventually it'll just burn up and crash into the. So into it's the like planet. your level of satisfaction with the status quo of your life, or what do you mean by entropy in that context? Yeah, so it's like your def if your definition of hundred percent purely content right now, over time will degrade because again because i was talking about where, where humans we fit we grow into the context of our lives mm-hmm. and so i think a lot of people get complacent with their happiness and say okay i'm happy right now ergo i should i would be happy for the rest of my life uh there's no the, the laws of entropy don't allow that you know I mean yeah. uh, you'll grow into you will eventually and it could be one year it could be 20 years before you the laws of entropy apply to your uh level of happiness whatever you want to say but at some point you will deorbit if you know what i mean and so and it's, what and it's the idea of like um happiness is such a for a lot of our lives very intangible because we think when i get to this point yep. i'll be happy and because we're thinking in yardsticks or goals or long-term visions the real happiness is being excited by the process like 100%. crossing that line like let's say one of my goals this year and like there's there's obviously no marathons this year but i was like by the end of august i want to do a marathon in ireland and that was my goal and crossing that line and finishing the marathon lasts less than a second but the confidence and satisfaction of gearing myself and training in a way to become somebody who runs long distances is what that process would have been all about. And people kind of, I, I, I think some people focus on the goal way too much mm-hmm. and the dissatisfaction after they've achieved it is so nearly repulsive to them that they need to look elsewhere. Whereas if you're not happy on the journey, how can you possibly be happy yeah. at the destination? Yeah, so kind of my this is kind of nebulous way of thinking about it. this is how I think about it where it's like say you're you're content now I kind of stratify my mind so like there's say like 80% of my mind is on this current moment of uh, contentment then I have a kind of a background noise of 20% working on something new that I know in the future would bring me happiness and so again it's kind of it's just kind of a self-aware delusion I kind of live under which is I think is Delusion is very important, I think, uh, in some regards. Tim, it, Tim Minchin had a fantastic quote where it's like, 
his his idea is like the passionate dedication to short term goals because if you have this shiny light at the end of the road that we call life you'll never be able to be caught off guard by this exciting thing in your periphery mm. like if you're five years down the line to where you think you want to be and you see something that's so deeply exciting to you at that period in your life that you should allow yourself to meander and say well maybe this is where I want to go yep. on course correct sure. and again that kind of comes back to talking about Patrice it's kind of this uh, authenticity and knowing knowing who you are and where you want to go that that thing uh, but what I say about the stratification is kind of the, the mind uh, it's kind of as you go along as you orbit earth which I would say uh, and your general contentment goes down and you devote more and more of your mind to this other avenue and so you kind of over time you just instead of being 80 20 then it's 70 30 mm-hmm. and then and then by the time you're discontent in this bubble you're content in this one and so there you're, you're kind of you're always switching to the next form the next form of contentment uh, I guess this is a very nebulous way of talking about it, but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's kind of just this general Is that ever mindset. something that you read, or it's just something that you've tried to apply intrinsically or intuitively? Yeah, I don't know if I've read it. I mean, I mean maybe I have, like, I just can't remember it. But... I've never heard it explained in that way, but it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it's a talk of shite, You know, I mean... That's noon in 2025, TD. <laughs> You know, I, I have a weird thing of, I like to, like, I love uh, space and uh, cosmology, that kind of stuff. So I, I kind of, I think thinking in terms of orbits is a very, I just naturally go towards that thing for some, some strange reason. Uh, but yeah, maybe it's some theory out there. I'm sure someone just said, that's fucking, that's Copernicus theory. I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. But uh, that's where I, that's how I kind of uh, map it in my mind, at least. And again, it's kind of, it's not something you live day to day, but it's just, Every now and then, when you're thinking about okay, these big decisions in life, what am I going to do? What am I going to do next? Kind of that's how I kind of uh, think about it. And Fab, before we finish up, I'm sure a lot of people that have listened so far are kind of curious. Like, what are your plans for 2020 and 2021? Like, what, what, where is your mind kind of geared towards now? Yeah. So as I was saying before, my original plan was to be hiking in the PCT. For, uh, in California, Oregon, Washington, uh, US. Uh, meant to be starting May 10th, but obviously COVID knocked that all out of whack. Uh, so what I'm planning on doing now is I'm planning on doing that next year. I had to apply for a permit. Uh, so it's a chance I might get the permit. If I don't get that permit, I might reattempt to pe- the AT, the, the other hike I was talking about, or maybe the TA in New Zealand, where you essentially walk the length and breadth of both islands in New Zealand. But there's a whole bunch of hikes out there that I could do, do you know what I mean? Uh, so that, like, next year I'll be doing one then. Um, so what I'm looking at now is exploring more uh, kind of a, a digital nomad life. So it's kind of what I was doing after I left AT to hike in the US last year. I went to Thailand, Vietnam, Philippines, and I was kind of just working by myself, building things. Uh, at the time I was, yeah, very, like, very rudimentary stuff. Uh, but I kind of learned the ropes there, you know what I mean? So now I'm going to try and do that more long-term uh, going forward. So maybe it's June now, so maybe the end of July, start of August, I'm thinking of going to uh, Tbilisi, Georgia, 
which for those who don't know, it's kind of like the southern border of Russia, kind of above Armenia and Iran. Um, it's interesting little place. It's kind of um, it's kind of like halfway between Europe and Asia and the Middle East. So it's kind of a whole bunch of influences like mixed there. Uh, but they're really open to uh, tourists going in there or like di- digital nomads. It's kind of this thing called, the, the, the community is called. Essentially, it's someone who essentially works remotely and bounces around the world uh, because they're not bound by a place. They can live anywhere, essentially. So they kind of endeavor to live their life to earn in euros and dollars, but live in Larry, Georgian Larry's or Thai Bot. So it's like... Instead of spending a thousand a month in Dublin to live in a, stable. live in a stable like I do, <laughs> I can I can spend two or three hundred and live in like a nice one or two bedroom apartment in Tbilisi, and then yeah, and the cost of living over there is much cheaper and that kind of stuff, you know. And in my mind, obviously I've been there, so I'm gonna test it out and see what it's like. Uh, but from my mind, my point of view, the what I've researched, the like, quality of life is no worse than Dublin like do you know what I mean especially if I'm just working on my laptop doing my own thing I don't have to worry about commutes or I can stuff the internet's all good and so that's what I'm going to be focusing on building some websites uh, and try and get some stuff in, in the get some money through that way as opposed to going to a 9 to 5 job and in this way I can have build those websites and they can be earning some form of money passively so that even when I'm hiking I can be getting some money in the background to kind of cover that cost and eventually, hopefully over the long term, get to a point where all the, whatever I build is passively created enough money to cover my lifestyle where I'm, again, it'll be, it won't be any extravagant, it'll just be a normal life where I go hike for four or five, six months of the year and the other six months I'll just bounce around these low cost living countries. Um. For anybody who's fascinated by what you're doing and like is excited by following your next track, what's the best way for them to follow you? Uh, so I have a, a YouTube channel where I kind of post like hiking stuff. Uh, it's Patrick Noonan. Uh, just search that on YouTube and it'll probably come up, I guess. Uh, again, Instagram, Patrick Noonan 89, I think. Uh, for political shit, uh, patrick-noonan.com. A uh, new website I'm working on is called hikertimes.com where I'm just talking about hiking stuff again. Uh, yeah, that's that's good. That's good enough. <laughs> and before you head away to Tbilisi, I'm taking you up Loch Lequilla. Well, I'm gonna be. I'm thinking hiking the Lequilla, so I'll probably just pop up there myself. Well, all right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but if you want, send me a text when you get nine hundred. If you want to, if you want to coordinate, we can uh, come there. Let's do it. Yeah. And, uh, you're a beautiful person. Thank you very much for taking the time to physically call over at the end of the lockdown. It, you're the first person who I've recorded a podcast with in the flesh. And it's just, it's so good, man. Thank you very much. Pleasure, man. Peace.